Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer, who spoke with, I got to tell you, someone who is truly one of the leaders in the cancer research community. Dr. Kevin Shannon is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at University of California at San Francisco, where he holds the Roma and Marvin Auerbach Distinguished Professorship of Molecular Oncology. His research into the molecular biology of leukemia has impacted clinical care, and his thinking really continues to shape the field. He's received nine ACS grants in his career, among countless others, and was named an American Cancer Society Research Professor in 2010 for his seminal contributions to leukemia research. So I'd say we were pretty lucky to have this conversation. Susanna, what are we going to learn about? Thanks, Joe. I, I think this was a really wonderful way for us to learn from truly one of the thought leaders in the field. Um, Dr. Kevin Shannon has contributed in enormous ways to our understanding of leukemia, why leukemia happens, how it happens, how we can treat resistance in leukemia, and he just has a lovely way of kind of level setting with us, being grounded in the reality of a, a challenging cancer space, but also motivating us to think about um, how far we've come to treat in treating leukemia in the past 30 years and um, some really incredible advances that are um, seemingly uh, just on the horizon. So it was a, a great conversation and I think you'll really love hearing from Kevin. Welcome, Kevin. We're so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. Um, let's let's level set a little bit for our listeners who don't think about leukemia all the time. Um, how how do you define leukemias to people who don't study leukemia? I pretty simply define it to families um, as as a disorder of the immature cells that form all of the blood in our, that circulates. Um, so the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets, the, um, the lymphocytes, all, all of the different blood lineages um, are formed by immature cells in our bone marrows. And sometimes one of those cells gets sick and gives rise to uh, a leukemia by growing out of control. All right. So as in the case of all cancers, leukemias form from cells where the cells that we need, right, as you mentioned, cells that are, are going to otherwise form all the different cells of our blood, that something goes not great, something goes wrong in that in that process of development, and we develop a tumor, and in this case, it's leukemia. So we'll, we'll dive down into that, into what you study, which are some of the things that can go wrong. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. So about, of all the cancers that you could study, why did you pick leukemia? What what about leukemia motivates you? So I think I think there, uh, the the most immediate answer for that is that um, I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric oncologist, and that the most common cancer in children is leukemia and and blood cancers. So I was naturally drawn to those um, by an interest in the patients. And in addition, when I started to do this three decades ago. It was difficult to do sort of molecular studies of patient cancer samples and also to build cancer models. And just because of the nature of the blood forming cells and the ability to manipulate them outside the body and transplant them, they've been the easiest uh, system 
to sort of do um, molecular biology experiments that have kind of led the way for many discoveries uh, in cancer biology. So three decades is a long time, and you've seen, I would imagine, some pretty incredible changes. And you alluded to changes in the ways that we are able now to study leukemia. I'm, I'm wondering if there's something that you really wish that people understood, just kind of one of the wow factors. Like, have there been substantial changes maybe in the way that we treat leukemia over the past three decades? I think that, um, yeah, yes, there have, and they've been, I think the thing, the most important thing to kind of emphasize to the public is that leukemia has been one of the diseases where we've been able to apply the principle of understanding the underlying molecular basis of the disease to developing better treatments and then implementing those treatments in the clinic. Uh, the example that everybody uses, of course, is the famous discoveries in the BCR ABLE-driven leukemia CML and in acute lymphoblastic leukemia with that abnormality. But there are many examples of molecularly targeted inhibitors that we now use in the clinic and have really helped improve cure rates and also reduce toxicity for patients. There are BTK inhibitors uh, in adults with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. There are FWIT3 inhibitors in AML, acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, So there's lots of different uh, examples of where we've taken the information from understanding the the molecular abnormalities and then bringing them um, to new therapies. And then, of course, most recently, uh, in terms of CAR T-cell therapy, leukemia has kind of led the way there as well. All right. So you you bring up some great points that in recent years, especially, we've seen some pretty impressive changes in the ways that some leukemias are treated on one side of the equation. But on the other, leukemia remains a real challenge, um, both for patients and for clinicians. So maybe let's, let's dive down a little bit more into something you said earlier, which is that you think a lot about the molecular basis of the disease. So let's talk about that. So when we think about the molecular basis of leukemia, a lot of times we're thinking about what goes wrong. And so in particular, you think a lot about the mutations that occur in the DNA of leukemia cells that can give those cells these inappropriate abilities to grow abnormally. So. If that's the case, if understanding the molecular cause of leukemia is so important, um, how do you make decisions on which mutations in the DNA to study? Because you study a lot of them, but they're a lot more even beyond what your lab does. So I'm, I'm, I think maybe you could help walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah. So since I've been doing since I've been doing this for three decades and got my Medicare card last card last month. <laughs> Um, I come from the era of when you couldn't take a cancer sample, a leukemia or a pancreas cancer or lung cancer sample, and sequence all the genes very efficiently and know what the abnormalities were that you might be interested in. So in our case, in my case in particular, we began to think about, well, one way of saying that a particular molecular abnormality must be important is if it's associated with a familial predisposition. And so most leukemias in children, as well as in adults, 
occur what we call sporadically. We don't think that there's any familial or genetic cause for the leukemia. Mm-hmm. But, but rare cases are, and those have been very, very informative. And back in the 1980s and early 90s, we began collecting samples uh, from children who developed leukemia. Um, and it was very clear just from the genetics of their families that there was something going on in those families that made it more likely for those kids to get leukemia. And obviously the fact that it was occurring at a very early age was, was very abnormal because most cancers, is, is, including leukemias, occur mostly in, in adults. And the older you are, the more likely you are to get um, uh, different kinds of cancers. So there were two things. There was a sort of clear familial predisposition or tendency for these families to have multiple people who got leukemia and, and that they were developing these leukemias at a very early young age or early age. And in fact, my entire career, 30 odd years later, has been driven by those initial discoveries and the pathways that that those discoveries brought us into. It sounds like you have this bucket of decisions to make. So you you know there are lots of different mutations then that can give leukemia cells this ability to grow and divide indefinitely. But one of the ways you make decisions is are these mutations things that we see occurring in families and causing leukemia at early ages? So that's, let's put a hold on that bucket and add to it another bucket of challenges in leukemia that you study, and those are chromosomal abnormalities. So you study both. You study mutations and chromosomal abnormalities. So let's level set for everyone. And so what's the difference? What's the difference in a DNA mutation and a chromosomal abnormality? Fundamentally, they're, they're uh, similar in that they both affect the DNA in the cancer cell and the DNA is different from the DNA in, a, uh, in the normal cells. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the case of a mutation, when one looks at all of the different chromosomes in a particular cell, uh, 46 chromosomes in a normal human cell, they look pretty much normal and a mutated gene looks the same at that sort of low resolution of the chromosome it happens to be located on than a normal copy. And it may just have one amino acid that's different, one one base in the DNA that's changed. Um, And that's often true in say a FLT3 mutant acute myeloid leukemia. We also have situations where we can look at the chromosomes and instead of them sort of looking normal, there may be two that are stuck together abnormally and that's called a translocation. And that's also common in leukemia. Again, the BCR ABLE was the most famous one. It was the one first discovered by um, Peter Knoll in Philadelphia back in 19, early 1960s. That's why it's called the Philadelphia chromosome. <laughs> Again, at that low resolution, we could look back then. And then in many cancer cells, including leukemia cells, there were losses of whole chromosomes where um, an entire chromosome is either as many copies um, as we see in leukemias and kids with Down syndrome, where they have the extra chromosome 21 that all kids with Down syndrome have, or in some of the leukemias we study where one of the copies of chromosome 7 is lost. And that poses a very different problem because... There are many genes on chromosome seven, say a thousand, and any one of those thousand genes could be contributing to the leukemias that are developing um, because or as a consequence of the loss of chromosome seven. Interesting. Okay, so we got this one bucket of 
mutations in DNA, and then another bucket where we have chromosomal differences, either abnormal chromosomes sticking together where that really shouldn't happen, or perhaps pieces that are missing or duplicated. And all of these things, as you said, can cause changes in the way that the DNA is read, basically, and the proteins that come from that. So I'm interested, are the two ever overlapping, right? Do they ever cooperate with each other and cause problems? Yeah, they, they frequently do, actually. And, and you know, it, the more that the term for this abnormal number of chromosomes in cancer cells is aneuploidy. And the more the more advanced a cancer is, the more aneuploid it tends to be generally. Again, this, the tumors that we study in young children, these these blood cancers with monosomy seven tend to be outliers because all the other chromosomes appear to be normal. However, those leukemias with monosomy seven do have some other genetic changes or molecular alterations that cooperate or contribute to the outgrowth of the leukemia cells. It's interesting. So how might they help us understand how might they might cooperate? How would that look inside a cell? So, um, for example, one of the cancer predisposition syndromes we study is a gene disorder called neurofibromatosis, neurofibromatosis type one. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most, it's probably the single most common familial cancer predisposition. And patients who have that have get sometimes benign tumors on their skin, and they have abnormal um, little patches of skin pigmentation. And so we kind of know that they have this syndrome, but young children with neurofibromatosis are predisposed to a kind of leukemia called juvenile myelomatocytic leukemia, or JNML. And a long time ago, we discovered that that was because what happens in these children is they inherit one abnormal copy of the neurofibromatosis gene from their father or mother, uh, and then they lose the normal copy in an early immature blood-forming cell. And that's sufficient to give it a growth advantage. And then some of those blood-forming cells that are on their way to forming leukemia then lose a copy of chromosome 7. And that seems to contribute even more to the outgrowth of these leukemias, sort of in a stepwise pattern that the cell initially gets the mutation and loses the normal copy of NF1, but then grows even better if it has one less copy of the whole chromosome 7. That's really fascinating. So it's kind of a evolution on steroids inside one patient that drives the development potentially of a leukemia. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and, it, and one of the interesting and important things about pediatric cancers in general, in terms of trying to understand the really key, what we call molecular drivers of cancer, is that pediatric cancers have many, many fewer mutations on average than adult cancers. And so it's a little bit easier to see the really important trees in the forest <laughs> when you're looking at a pediatric cancer. Based on that, based on that advantage, I guess, we can think about it that way, that because there are fewer mutations in pediatric cancers compared to adults, it's easier to know the mutations that are problematic. And so in some ways, maybe easier to think about how to develop a drug to target what's gone wrong. So 
I, I guess my first question would be around that piece, around what do you do with that information? Help help us to understand that once you know, once you know that this mutation or this abnormality is a challenge, what next? So I think, you know, that the, you then get into what <laughs> what is kind of referred to in the sort of um, cancer research and pharmaceutical spaces is the protein druggable. Um, and druggable is slang for something where we know um, good ways and have good history of making chemical inhibitors. And so without going into a great deal of detail, if you have uh, a gene or a protein like NF1 that does a really important job in controlling how cells grow, and the cancer cells lose that protein or lose the function of that protein, it's very hard to make a drug to that because hmm. you're trying to make a drug to something that isn't there anymore. On the other hand, if you have an abnormally active enzyme like a kinase, like in FLT3 or the epidermal growth factor receptor in, in many adult tumors, um, it's a little bit more straightforward to make a drug that actually inhibits that abnormal enzyme activity that so-called kinase activity. For many of the pediatric cancers, many of the most common mutations that we really would like to make drugs to are difficult to make drugs to because of their either what we call loss of function or they encode what we would say in a protein level as an abnormal transcription factor. And those tend to not have an abnormal enzyme activity and therefore it's not something that's easy to turn off. Um, I guess a single, a simple way of thinking about this is that an abnormal enzyme activity is sort of like a switch that's turned on too bright. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to turn that kind of a switch off than one where there's no obvious sort of change in the brightness. It just changes the way the cell makes decisions by regulating a whole bunch of different genes. I guess that leads me to a question that I have around a place that you've had significant experience and that is once we do have a drug to treat leukemia le leukemia cells just don't don't kind of take it sitting down so resistance is a big problem in this space so maybe walk us through what how can a leukemia once we have a drug how does leukemia potentially become resistant to that and the drug stop working why would that happen so there are two, that's a really good question. There are two general mechanisms of that. And we've, again, the leukemia field has been evolving. Um, and I think when I was in medical school, and this is now a very long time ago, um, we thought about cancer as a clonal disease. And that is all the cancer cells were stamped out of the same foundry and all looked exactly the same. There was the normal DNA in the patient and the abnormal DNA, and all the cancer cells had the same abnormal DNA. It turns out that that's really not true, and it turns out there's significant what we call clonal heterogeneity in any cancer. So when we think about the first mutation that maybe gives the primordial cancer cell a chance to kind of begin to grow out, that's usually saved in all of the cancer cells. But what happens next becomes a little bit of a... Uh, evolutionary sort of crapshoot. And what begins to occur is a, a race or a competition. And then what we see in the clinic when a patient comes in with leukemia is that leukemia clone that has exactly the right set of mutations to both, number one, cause the disease, but 
but number two, to outcompete all of the other leukemia clones. Mm. And we often don't detect the fact that there's maybe hundreds of other clones until a patient goes into remission and then has a relapse. And then we see, oh, the relapse cells actually have some mutations. And we can then go back and look at the diagnostic sample and say, well, they were there all the time. And we basically just selected in the same way as one might select for a drug-resistant uh, bug when with treating with antibiotics. So that idea has become important in cancer biology and is certainly true. And we've seen it in some of our systems and the experiments we've done. But it's also now become obvious that um, when we treat children and adults with cancer, we often will suppress the growth of the cancer cells. And that, but some of them will survive. And as we're treating them, they'll acquire another mutation that then allows them to relapse and grow out. And so there are these two different mechanisms, but they have very fundamental differences in terms of what the best approaches are for cancer treatment um, to try to overcome those problems. Oh, wow. That's really interesting and so incredibly frustrating. I mean, what, what you present sounds like kind of that game that you play like when you go to the fair whack-a-mole right where you're, you stand in front of the game and one little mole pops up and you whack it on the head and then another one comes up and um, a seemingly endless supply of these little moles show up that you're supposed to to whack and I guess can you help us to understand what do you do right as an oncologist how, how do you treat a disease that's constantly changing? So I think that it's a really good question. And I think, you know, um, our, I think we can take a lot of lessons from the early pioneers um, in the 1960s. And, you know, essentially what was done back then using just whatever drugs happened to be available and pediatric mm -hmm. leukemia is a good example, we would give children methotrexate and they would go into remission sometimes and then they would all relapse. And then we would try giving them steroids and they would go into remission sometimes and they would all relapse. And we would try other drugs like vincristine and same thing, some would go in remission, they would all relapse. And then in the 1960s, different groups of investigators kind of got this idea, well, rather than playing whack-a-mole, where we're just essentially either selecting for the resistant clones that already exist or making them resistant by exposing them to the drug. How about if we took the vincristine and the prednisone and the methotrexate and gave them all together or gave them, didn't give the leukemia cells a chance to come back, but when the patient was in remission, continue the drugs or switch the drugs to see if we could continue to suppress them and ultimately cure them. And, you know, if you think about that, whack-a-mole as a mathematical idea, you know, if you try treating with one drug, there may be one in a thousand cells that can overcome the a very potent drug we would treat like steroids and leukemia, but it may be one in a million cells that can overcome two drugs, and it may be one in a hundred million that can overcome three drugs, and at some point you begin to start really pushing the survival curves up because, in fact, what you've done is you've now been able to eradicate essentially all of the cells that have the capacity to um, cause leukemia relapse before they have a chance to do it by treating 
with multiple different drugs at the same time. And I think as we even move into precision medicine, one of the things that I think has been frustrating to many of us in the field is we haven't reapplied that lesson perhaps as quickly as we should. We, we, we find a new kinase inhibitor for a mutation, or we try a new drug like a BET inhibitor in leukemia, but we try it as a single drug, and we know that with single drugs, particularly in advanced cancers, the patients are always going to relapse. Um, they always figure out a way to get around a single drug. And I think many people in the field think the sooner we can test single drugs, see that they give us a little bit of activity, the sooner we can combine them, the quicker we'll be able to develop better therapies and protocols for people. So in line with that, I, I know that a lot of what you do as you think about DNA mutations and chromosomal abnormalities that occur in leukemia, a lot of what you do is directly applicable to other cancers, um, particularly solid tumors, which we would think of as not being cancers of the of the blood system. So can you help us to understand that? How How is what you are doing and what you're finding relevant to some of the bigger questions that we ask in the cancer field? One of the things that probably shouldn't be surprising to any of us is that the most commonly the most common genes that are sort of mutated somatically, that is, are mutated spontaneously in adult cancers, those are the ones that tend to be mutated also in pediatric cancers and in some children, those are the mutations that they inherit. And so the NF1 gene we now know is mutated in um, about a third of glioblastoma brain tumors, hmm. even though those patients don't have neurofibromatosis. It's mutated in many, many melanomas. It's mutated in about a three or 4% of lung cancers. Even though those patients don't have neurofibromatosis, the protein that the neurofibromatosis gene, gene makes plays a very important role in controlling cell growth. The way it does that is through another protein called RAS. And RAS is one of the most famous and most common cancer genes. Um, and um, along with p53, RAS and p53 are the two most common genes mutated in all human cancers, including adult and pediatric cancers. And so in some ways, studying these familial cancers and understanding the pathways takes us right into the main events that are occurring in human cancers of adults and children. And one of the things that we've done over the many years is the hematopoietic system, just working with blood cells, um, tends to be experimentally more tractable, a somewhat easier system than some of working with solid cancers uh, in mice and in other and in tissue culture. And so we can we can do more with blood cells and so we can study the pathway in somewhat different ways. And what we discover in blood cells can then be moved into studies of solid tumor cells. It's not surprising, as you said, that these commonly mutated genes would also be common in adult and pediatric cancers and that um, because of the nature of, of blood cells, um, that fundamentally they're easier to work with, um, more of them perhaps, and, and there are many lessons to be learned. So... I actually, I really love that. Um, 
I, I'm wondering, and you may have already said it because what you said was actually just really uh, fundamentally impressive and motivational, but is there something that you're particularly excited about right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think we're all excited in the in the just in the very rapid advances that genomics and have allowed us to make in the whole area of precision oncology. And 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 I think what I would say the really confluence and convergence of immuno oncology, being able to understand how to influence the immune system, perhaps a little bit better to um, uh, control cancer and even cure cancer, and also at the same time to be able to inhibit some of the key driver mutations. And I think what you'll start to see or what we'll see over the next five to 10 years is more and more effort played on how do we sort of target both major kind of abnormalities in cancer. In other words, how do we use the immune system to recognize and eliminate and control cancer cells? And at the same time, how do we use small molecule chemical inhibitors to target the specific mutations that are driving their growth? And I think by by sort of hurting the cancer cells with these targeted therapies and regular chemotherapy drugs, we can make it easier for the immune system to kind of clean up the mess and control the cancer in the long run. And at the same time, we by leveraging the, the immune system, we can um, potentially have a little better way of handling this cancer evolution problem because the immune system is smart enough to kind of evolve with the cancers in some, um, some ways. So it sees the cancer evolve and it sort of recognizes that and evolves itself to continue to recognize and control the tumor. And, and and I love the historical perspective that you gave us, that we have so much to learn from the oncologists who truly were the pioneers in the 60s and began to think about uh, kind of simultaneous treatment. And that definitely what you're alluding to is the potential to combine precision therapies where we know a mutation has occurred um, with an immunotherapy where we can, um, in essence, clear the whole board, right? Whack every mole that's there because you're right. The immune system is um, inherently so brilliant at finding the most minute things that are wrong, right? A, uh, at eliminating all infected cells if we're thinking about an infection. Um, and by the same um, kind of line of thought, eliminating the very last, those very remaining, right? If a precision therapy was to target, you know, uh, all, almost all the cells, 99.99, there's still, there's still a bit left. And the immune system could, can help to find those and eliminate them. So exciting times for sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, we just, we're still, I think, in the very early ages of immuno-oncology, we... There are, um, and, and like any other field, there's been a tremendous amount of initial excitement, and now I think people are starting to realize that there are going to be some tumors uh, and cancers where the immune system, for whatever reason, can be activated in a fairly straightforward way and is extremely effective, melanoma probably being the poster child for that, um, uh, leukemia with the CAR T cells, and, and to some extent lung cancer, but at the same time, there are many um, cancers that are very resistant to immunotherapies. And um, most patients who get immunotherapies still unfortunately relapse. So we have a lot of work to do both in exploiting and improving immunotherapy, but again, in combining it with, um, 
with targeted therapies in a very thoughtful, rational way. I'm really interested I, to know if you have thoughts about the impact that the American Cancer Society has had on your career. I've um, followed your career for a long time and have um, been extremely impressed with all you've done. And I know that ACS has intervened at, at different times and um, we're certainly a huge fan, but I'd love to know if, there, if there's a way that maybe I haven't thought about that ACS has been influential. Well, I think I, I think in, in a number of different arenas, uh, maybe one you haven't thought about, which I'll just mention briefly, but uh, is um, so in part, you know, the the ACS RSG award I got was one of the one of the first or I think the first major peer review grant I got. Um, I got a DOD and F grant and I got the ACS grant. And then before I got an R01, like most um, RPG recipients in the I was astonished at, at the council meeting, you know, whatever it was two, three years ago, the last council meeting I attended that um, that 70% of the young young investigators who get these research scholar grant awards go on and get an R01 from the National Cancer Institute or another institute. It, it's an amazing kind of conversion rate and an amazing sort of bridge between early career and really becoming an independent investigator. It certainly was for me, but it, it's amazing how pervasive, if you will, that model is and how successful it's been. Um, and then obviously I've had the American Cancer Society Research Professor Award, and that's allowed me to sort of initiate some high risk kind of long-term projects and experiments um, to get pilot data for other grants. And so that's certainly been helpful and I think um, particularly in developing and prosecuting this whole line of investigation that we followed of treating cancer cells in vivo uh, in living mice and pulling out the resistant clones and understanding the dynamics of the resistance and what their mechanisms are. That's been really helpful there. But what I was going to mention is probably the, the other leg of the stool that you may not have been thinking of is the Three or four people in my lab, uh, young scientists who benefited from ACS fellowship support, um, people like Annika Wandler and um, Mike Burgess. So it's been really, uh, it's been great in all of those ways. Well, we're awfully excited about all that you're doing. And, and you're right. I think foundations who fund research have to make strategic decisions about where they push the bolus of their funding and for the ACS for a long time. You're right. It has been to that young or beginning investigator space because we know that while there are challenges throughout the career of a researcher, that um, early stage can be particularly challenging. And also, in a selfish way, we want the most outstanding scientists to be in oncology research. And that's a really great place to capture folks is at the beginning of their career. So I think... Um, it's been obvious through your tremendous achievements that um, you were a great win for the ACS. So we're awfully glad to have you and several members of your team as, as recipients of ACS funding. That's just fantastic. Yeah, and of course, you know, as you may also know, it, it doesn't directly affect me or my lab, but I'm also the principal investigator on an institutional research grant from the ACS, which provides pilot seed money for young faculty members here at UCSF and at many other um, 
can't at many of the research institutions around the country. And again, as a great way of um, sort of kickstarting people's new ideas and helping them uh, get an idea from their brain into the laboratory and, or into the clinic uh, where it can benefit patients. Um, Tell me a little more about that. I, I think it's interesting for people to understand that research grants are often large amounts of money because science is expensive. But as you mentioned, the institutional research grant, the actual dollars that go to the scientists, they're not big grants. They're, as you call them, they're pilot awards. So they're going to be more on the nature of thousands of dollars, like 30,000-ish dollars. So can, can that amount of money be impactful for a scientist? I think it can be impactful in a number of different ways. I mean, we see particularly, I would say, in the, in the clinical research and population sciences space, it's incredibly impactful because let's say you're doing a clinical trial and you'd like to see if the drug actually works. Um, and it does or it doesn't. But let's say you see a group of patients that respond and those that don't respond. A lot of times the individuals who are doing these clinical trials have time and funding to do that piece of it, but they don't have the time and funding to say, then do any sequencing or molecular analysis of the, of the tumor samples from the patients. And sometimes that $30,000 can be key and allowing them to now take samples from patients who respond versus those who don't respond to try to understand what, what's the underlying wiring here. Why, does, why are some patients responding to this drug and are, others aren't? Or when a patient who's had a response and then relapses, what's changed in the DNA of the tumor cells? Uh, so that can be enormously helpful. And oftentimes, quite honestly, at institutions like UCSF and other main cancer centers, you know, a core laboratory can run those samples through very efficiently. The investigator may be a, a physician who's running the clinical trial, may not even have a laboratory, but now has access to all of this information about their patients. So that can be really helpful. It can be really helpful in a population sciences area to say pilot an online app for mm -hmm. patients about getting their colonoscopies um, to then show that it's feasible to get a, a larger NIH grant. And similarly, um, it can pay part of a technician in a research lab. So there's lots of different ways that those relatively small awards can be uh, impactful and beneficial. And I think the, um, the way we've used it at UCSF is to try to spread it out around with all of the different missions in cancer research. So our view has been it's not that there's one kind of science is good and another kind of science is not so interesting or good, but that there's really good science in all of the different cancer disciplines. There's good basic cancer research, there's good translational cancer research, there's good clinical cancer research, there's good population sciences cancer research. We're gonna pick those best projects in all of those domains and give those young folks a chance to get started. Uh, that's really wonderful to hear that's your strategy because it's definitely the approach the ACS takes that it takes a village, right? We we fund everything from cancer prevention to palliative care and everything in between. So that's exciting to see you're also applying that at the institutional level. I think I have one more question about foundations and then I'll let I'll um, ask you a question about patients and I'll let you get back to um, all the great things you're doing. So 
you've been funded by the American Cancer Society. You've also been funded. You've been funded by lots of different organizations, but I, I know you've been funded by uh, St. Baldrick's as well. And uh, as you probably know, the ACS and St. Baldrick's have teamed up together to offer a plan to collaborate to fund pediatric work in the pediatric cancer space. So I'm wondering, do you is this a good thing? Should foundations be working together? Could you see ways that we could accomplish more together than we could separately? Yeah, no, I think I think for sure. I think just in terms of also, um, first of all, I think it allows um, for more rigorous and careful peer review. Um, on the St. Baldrick side, I think most of the peer review on St. Baldrick's has been done by pediatricians like myself. I think we do a good job of it, but ACS has a broader kind of pool of peer reviewers, um, some from outside pediatrics, which is great to have people who are more critical. I think the, the missions of ACS and St. Baldrick's in supporting young investigators, I think is, is a really important one. And it's so there's really good alignment there. I mean, more, I, I want to say old guys, but I shouldn't say that. I should say more experienced and senior investigators like myself can, can get, say, Baldrick's awards. But they're, they're relatively small awards for a single year to just kind of allow you to generate a little bit of additional preliminary data. And there's been a huge impact of St. Baldrick's in, in the fellowship arena for pediatricians who are finishing their clinical training in oncology and, and trying to get to that next step where they can write a more competitive career development award, either a K award or even an R award to the NIH. Um, so that's very much in alignment with uh, what the ACS has tried to support that early phase pipeline investigator. And to me, both ACS and St. Baldrick's are kind of grassroots organizations that tend to be community-based and reach out and raise money um, uh, in, in the community as a whole um, to try to uh, support the cancer mission. So I think there's a lot of alignments and uh, similarities and areas where um, there's great synergy. Yeah, we're, we're incredibly optimistic and, and excited. So we'll um, keep our fingers crossed as this rolls out. So I, I have one last question for you, and I'd like to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, which is when I asked you, why do you study leukemia? And you said, well, I'm a pediatrician. So uh, many of our listeners are cancer patients or folks that love them. And I'd like to know, is there a message you would like to share with these listeners in particular? Well, I mean, I uh, obviously, um, and again, having practiced for a long time or had pra- I had practiced for a long time, you know, there's that initial terrible feeling that um, families have when a family member, whether it's an individual or an adult themselves or a teenager or a child, is diagnosed with cancer and, and um, the impact on the family and on that individual and, and all the challenges that they have to go through. And I... I've always been struck by the enormous sort of courage and understanding that families have had as they've tried to deal with this and and partner with us. And in our business, obviously, pediatrics, the the family piece and working with families is so, so important. And I've always been just uh, sort of um, uh, humbled, I guess, by the by the courage and just the kind of uh, cooperation and understanding that the families have shown and by the good humor of the 
the kids. In, in many ways, it's been a, it's it's certainly a privilege to be involved in their lives in that way during that very difficult, tragic time. Well, thank you for sharing what has been. And, and I guess the other message to them is we're trying to do better, of course. <laughs> Indeed, we are. We all are. And um, as as we've said before, it takes a village, and we are awfully glad that you're a part of that, you and your team. Thank you for all you do, and we'll let you get back to it. Thanks for sharing your time with us today. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.